0: 9.30 1 actually, so we'll go ahead and get started <clears throat> Mike Basie is back that's certainly a reason to be glad and uh, make sure you say hi to him and welcome you alright so this morning we are talking about 1 Peter 4 <clears throat> verses 12 through 19 and our questions to consider like I mentioned this last week I want you guys to think about Peter, his life uh, before he wrote this epistle, so during the ministry of Jesus, think about his life during uh, the Acts of the Apostles, what do we know about his death, and then just more generally, more broadly, what do we know about church history for the next few hundred years after Peter wrote this epistle, so uh, be thinking about that. I'll open us in prayer, we'll read the the text, and then talk about that. Let's pray. Our great triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that you have given to us to come together as brothers and sisters through the blood of your Son, Christ, and the work of your Holy Spirit, in applying that blood to us and forgiving our sins. Thank you for your word, thank you that you have blessed us with supernatural revelation from you of yourself. Thank you that this uh, this revelation is for us and for our children. Thank you that you did not leave us in the dark. But you told us about yourself not only in creation but in your word. Please help us this morning as we discuss this uh, text of scripture. Through your Holy Spirit, please enlighten our minds and illuminate our hearts that we might behold wonderful things from your law. May you use this text and this time to make us more like your son Christ, be conformed to his image for your glory and the good of your church. We pray all these things in Christ's name and for your glory. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, and then we'll get started. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will, be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. All right, so what do we know about Peter? In any of those categories. The person. He was
1: an apostle.
0: Yeah, he was an apostle. Good. He was a disciple. One of the the inner circle of Christ's disciples. When Peter was a disciple in the time of the ministry of Christ, uh, what, what kind of a disciple was he? If you had to choose one word, one modifier to describe Peter as a disciple, what would you choose and why? I was thinking about this and I I thought headstrong maybe might be a good descriptor for Peter. Peter. You guys agree with that or not? What was that again? What? Headstrong. Headstrong. What are some things that Peter did that might be considered headstrong? He's to
2: cut the ear off of the uh, yeah. soldiers when they were the arresting Christ.
0: Yep. Yep. Cut off the ear of the assistant of the high priest. Uh, so he was looking for a physical battle, Christ was fighting a spiritual battle. See that often throughout the Gospels, um, Christ is speaking in spiritual terms, and people are thinking in physical terms. Remember when Jesus walked on the water to the disciples in the boat? Peter said, "Hey, you know, tell me, and I'll, I'll walk on the water." And uh, his faith was not up to the task. Right, his faith faltered, and he started to sink. What about? We and, and we we mentioned this last week. Peter during Christ's trial, what happened there? You know, when Brewster Crone, three times happened where he
3: denied
0: knowing the no. Yeah, yeah. So Peter was ashamed of knowing Christ. Peter denied knowing Christ. Denied being a disciple of Christ. Before then. Yeah, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, right? That's, um, so, so again, Peter's misunderstanding what Jesus is talking about. Um, and then after Jesus' resurrection, what happens? And particularly thinking about the later chapters in John. He's yeah, he's restored. Um, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? yes. You know I do, Lord. And Jesus' response is to feed my sheep. Right. So Peter is restored. What about his life during the Acts of the Apostles? Is Peter still showing uh, shame at knowing Christ? Gladly faced martyrdom and never turn. Yeah, yeah. You know whether it's right for us to obey you. You know God only knows, but we we must obey God rather than men. So Peter is boldly preaching the word, boldly preaching Christ and him crucified. Uh, he's often put in prison for it. Um, he's also the first to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, right? With Cornelius and the or the yeah, Cornelius um, and the vision that Peter has, right? He baptizes the Gentiles. What do we know about his death? Yep, so the tradition from church history is that he was martyred for his faith. He was going to be crucified, but he insisted on being crucified upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy of dying the same death as his Lord. Excuse me. And then more generally, what do we know about church history for the next few hundred years after Peter writes this epistle, or after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ? Yep. Persecution by the Roman Empire, that's on lots of different levels. So there's official persecution by the emperor. The emperor is saying, you know, Christians need to be punished. There's sort of unofficial uh, persecution by um, just the people, Roman people. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of persecution going on. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to why that's important to this part of the text a little bit later we also say the
3: Holy Spirit came upon everyone and there was a major change after Christ's
0: ascension? Yes, certainly. Uh, yeah, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit to every believer at Pentecost certainly. Um, and that definitely has a lot to do with how people were able to withstand persecution, to, to remain steadfast under persecution, Definitely. I want to read, uh, go, go back to chapter uh, Peter, First Peter, chapter one, and read verses thirteen through the end of that chapter. It's kind of setting the stage for uh, what we're going to talk about today. Because, uh, as you could see from the initial reading of the text, we're going to talk about trials, suffering, insults, judgment, and trust. And I think these, this, this section in chapter one sets the scene or sets the stage for our passage. So I'm just going to read that real quick. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Inform our understanding of chapter 4 verses 12
3: through 19. Regardless of the trials and temptations we go through, we're still supposed to be obedient to the Lord Mm -hmm. and that the long term our salvation is assured and this is a very brief period of time compared to eternity. So we have... To look forward to, get us through some of the
0: harder things. Yeah, definitely. So it's uh, it, it's a matter of perspective, right? So Peter is, is setting our perspective not on um, the earthly, the however many years we have here on earth, but um, we're supposed to focus on eternity with the triune God. That's good. What else? Oh, well, look, Peter's laying
2: out in that first chapter is the foundation for the rest of the book. Talks about why we're going to have, you know, tribulation, but it also tells us why we're supposed to be holy, and using Christ as our example, he's in his in his logical methodology of laying out his his first on First Peter. This is where he you know basically gives the foundation from which he goes off of for the rest of the book, Um, and he's telling us that we're not going to experience anything different from what Christ has, and because of Christ is why we're going to do it. We are in Christ
4: is why we're going to see those um, you know, trials and tribulations
0: yeah, definitely
4: I'm thinking about the way that he the the Hebrew writers placed their emphasis the the strongest place was last and Mm -hmm. the last thing the last big rock, if you will in this passage after the therefore in 13 and between the therefore and Verse 13, and therefore in two one, the biggest rock there is the quote from Isaiah 40, uh, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Mm-hmm. And so everything is based on Christ's word. Yeah. In contrast to what, he was, to what he did, hey, this will not happen to you. Mm-hmm. So he's, through his trials, he's done this full 180 to believe
0: and preach the word of Definitely. good thank you all right so let's look at let's look at verse 12 so uh, on your on your outline I've provided uh, very few notes uh, so you can fill in fill them in as you see fit but uh, I have put sort of those five concepts that, that I mentioned trials suffering insults judgment and trust with the appropriate verse so verse 12 talking about trials I'll, I'll read it again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, so why are Christians not to be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon us? Why is that not something strange?
2: Christ said told, told the disciples, and the disciples taught all of those people don't remember their shooting, mm-hmm.
0: you, know, you will suffer because of me. And you will be persecuted. Christ said that before he, uh, you it know, was grief. Yep. So that's John, uh John fifteen, verses eighteen through twenty. This is the the upper discourse. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world but i chose you out of the world therefore the world hates you remember the word that i said to you a servant is not greater than his master if they persecute you if they persecuted me they will also persecute you if they kept my word they will also keep yours so yeah jesus is saying don't be surprised a servant's not greater than his master christ is the master and they persecuted him so we should expect the same There's this uh, this idea here in this verse that, um, well, first, how can we uh, can can we distinguish suffering from trials? Are those Mm -hmm. distinct things, or do they work together? What's the connection?
1: That's a good question. There can be differences. They can be similar. I think.
3: Mm I think they can be both similar and differences. Um, Some of the trials can us through what we consider suffering but some of the suffering we go through are not necessarily a trial. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, okay so what's the difference? I guess we,
1: maybe all of our suffering could be considered a trial in as much as our response to it. Right. the way that grow or diminish our faith. I think that if uh,
2: we're suffering it's, un- it's due to unjust Attacks against us. Trials, you just, you know, things that happen in life um, that happen in life. to can happen to anybody. But sufferings are a direct, a direct attack from those who don't agree with you. Those, for instance, it would be seizure and his people and, and put suffering on people, undo suffering, things that they didn't deserve to have, punishments, and all the things that go along with that. Mm-hmm. The trials are something that's just a part of life. They come, you know. Hard work, um, my paycheck didn't go through. Um, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, those are. That's in my mind the difference.
3: Mm-hmm. Let me try to answer. You, you said what's the difference between the two of them? Um, to what I responded before, and I think the difference is this: some trials, you automatically know how to respond appropriately in a godly way, mm-hmm. and those kind of trials, to me, are not suffering. You recognize. This
0: is a challenge, but it's not a suffering challenge to me. Okay. Um, That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it can be both. Okay. Just to go back to to what you said, Ron. um, Suffering can be unjust, but it can also be just. We'll we'll talk about that when we talk about verse 15. Um, But... Yeah, so it, it kind of makes me think of the Army um, and think back to like basic training. Okay, um, There's a lot of suffering in basic training and um, oftentimes when you're going through something like that you don't necessarily know why you're going through that. But there is a reason for it. It's not just... Well, sometimes maybe it's just because the drill sergeant is bored or upset. Um, but... The reason that you suffer together as a group is so that you can learn to put the other people before you, work as a team, all that kind of stuff. So that would be suffering for a goal. So it's a trial, right? What about in the Christian life? Um, How can suffering be testing or or trying be a trial? And are there any scriptures that come to mind that, that link suffering with trials? Yeah,
3: you can not beyond which you're able to bear it, but with a trial or temptation uh, you will be provided a way of escape mm-hmm. my personal life would tell you you might be tried right to the edge mm-hmm. only you can stand though for, for your saints you may think I'm doomed and I'm not going to make it but you will
0: yeah Yep. good any other scripture passages come to mind makes me think of Hebrews 12, uh, verses 7 through 11, or 13, excuse me. Um, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I think this goes uh, very well with what Pastor Mark is preaching about through Judges. Um, the Israelites were uh, the children of God, and they failed a lot. They uh, were wayward often, and they suffered because of that. They were, uh, but that suffering was not pointless. It wasn't God. God wasn't just mad at them and wanted to make them suffer. The suffering had a reason, had a purpose. Right? It was a trial. It was to show them their sin, to drive them away from um, trusting in themselves or trusting in other gods, and to drive them back to the one true God.
1: Can I just add to? Steve said, it also makes me think of Jesus' assurance that not a sparrow falls. No matter how grievous our affliction at the moment, God is never going to drop us out into the abyss. Mm -hmm. He will will get us through it, and it's helpful to remember that he's right there and will see us through. Mm
0: Yeah, and it, that, that's where the, the sovereignty of God is, is a comfort. Because um, if we are being tried, if we're suffering, then that was ordained for us by God. And we know that if that is true, then it is for our good and for his glory. And while we may not be able to see that in the moment, we can uh, know that what is happening is for our good.
4: James 1 comes to mind. Yes. Uh, consider it pure joy, my brothers, that whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and on it goes. In any trial, the inherent in the word trial is a test. And think about Job.
0: Job yeah. His faith was tested.
4: Mm-hmm. And in the end, it was proven. Mm-hmm. And it glorified God.
0: Yeah, From and... Uh, Job wasn't tested because God didn't know about his faith, right? It was tested to prove to Job, right? Because God is all knowing, God is sovereign. Um, I was I was going to mention James uh, one two through four, uh, also Romans chapter five, verses three through five. Uh, let me flip there real quick. Paul says. Uh, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, this testing, these trials, this suffering—it's uh, not we are not to be surprised at it, and we know that it is God's way of disciplining us as true children of God. Um, it is God's way of sanctifying us, ensuring that we are not conformed to this world. Um, it, that's part of why I read the first part of, uh, or the last part of First Peter chapter one: uh, "Do not become conformed to the passions of your former ignorance." Okay. Now, uh, is Peter referring to temptation here? He's talking about fiery trials? Is he talking about temptation? Okay. Why? Because because of our natural man still thriving, we will have impulses to
1: sin, mm-hmm. and sometimes the sin can look quite attractive. And as Steve was saying, not we don't always know immediately, we don't always recognize immediately that this is an illusion brought about by Satan. That this is our this is truly, truly a. question, but that um, what was the original question? Right.
0: Is is Peter talking about temptation here?
1: In the fiery trial, yeah. So it can be it can be really hard. You have to pray for to God to overcome your desire for something you know you shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of a trial, in as much as it forces you to your knees and mm-hmm. close your faith. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to say, and I happen to stay. I'll try not to say It really helps me to to remember that not only is, is God, through his disciples, his apostles, saying that this is the case, also in the very saying of it, he makes it true. So this isn't just something that we are to become aware of and take comfort in. This is something that he makes true by the saying of it. We can absolutely know that our suffering will produce perseverance. God has said it will. It's not because it's not because of how
0: particularly well we respond to mm-hmm. that trial or temptation. Yeah, yeah. God God will sanctify His people in spite of His people, right? Not not because of how well mm-hmm. we work uh, along with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, but often in spite of how poorly we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason I, I bring up. Temptation, um, it makes me think of later on in James 1, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So when temptation comes upon you, it—it it is a trial, but it's not, God is not tempting you to sin, right? Um, so let's, let's keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this passage. Let's look at verse 13, Uh, but, so again, don't be surprised, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So real quick, what is suffering, and what have we heard about suffering so far in 1 Peter? You will undergo it. Yes. Yes will happen think, think back to last week we looked at the, the first 11 verses of 1 Peter 4 think about verse 1 since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin remember Peter is is linking our suffering with Christ's suffering why? Why does he do that? Remember, we're called to imitate Christ because we are united with Christ. Christ suffered in the flesh and because of that suffering, he was glorified, so that's why, you know, you may so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And because Christ suffered and because we are to imitate Christ, we also will suffer. But it's uh, th- those two things are linked, right? Our suffering is linked with Christ's suffering. Um, and because we are, uh, so Christ was glorified because he suffered, and we are glorified, we will be glorified in heaven because he suffered for us. Uh, We imitate Christ because we are united to Christ, because we are empowered by the Spirit through our union with Christ. So our suffering is not not meaningless, it's not pointless. Uh, It will happen, and uh, we can take comfort in the suffering of Christ on our behalf. All right, verse 14. Uh, It says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, So this is a third category or a third concept. We had trials, we had suffering, and we have insults. So what are insults and how are they distinguished? Are they different from the other two? Or is it a subset of what he's already said? So which one do you think he's referring to here? The latter. Yeah, probably the latter. Could certainly mean the former as well. But so kind of interesting, I was I was listening to a sermon on this passage to prepare, and the, the pastor brought up the if at the beginning of verse 14. He says, if you are insulted. Why does he say if and not when? Is Peter saying that you may not be insulted for the name of Christ? Is an insult only
4: no. applicable if you let it bother you? So people mm-hmm. say an insult to you, but if you are steadfast in your faith and you hold off your back, is that actually an insult to you?
0: That's a good question. Um, without thinking about it too deeply, because you just asked the question. I would say probably yes, Uh, response to something doesn't necessarily change the nature of the thing. Um, Although, we we will talk about responses to to insults in in a little bit, but... um, Can I I just say Yes.
1: I think it's also just an old-fashioned way of using language. It reminds me of Christ's words about preparing very many mansions for us. And he says, and if I go, then I will... Mm -hmm. We know he's going to go. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. if it does he's deciding whether or not he's going
0: to go. Therefore, because I am to go, and I think that if here applies that also applies that same certainty. Okay, that's a good point. I, so I'm, I don't know Greek. I know a little bit about English. I think that this if is this is a conditional statement, right? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, the if. I think is not connected to whether you are insulted for the name of Christ or not, but not necessarily. I think it's, the, the conditionality is if you are insulted for the name of Christ or if you are insulted for something else, right? So there's that distinction. And this, uh, the, the, the pastor uh, that I, the sermon I listened to had a good quote. He said, if you were insulted for the name of Christ, as opposed to if you're insulted, for example, due to your own stupidity. Yeah, that's, that's okay. uh, so there is insulting because you deserve it, and it's your fault. And there's, on the other hand, insulting for the name of Christ. Is this a legitimate opposition or contrast here? It goes well with verse 16. Yes. Yeah, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So, there... The, the, this verse is making a distinction not between the uh, the possibility of being insulted for being a Christian, but the different kinds of, the, the, the reasons for being insulted. So, if you're insulted for being a Christian, then you are blessed. If you're insulted because of some character flaw, because you said the wrong thing or you did the wrong thing, you're not blessed in, in this sense, right?
5: Also, there are different conditional statements in Greek. And one essentially assumes the reality mm. uh, and looking at it right here that's that's one of those it's that's the kind of conditional statement this is okay. you will be um, it's an if as and sometimes the if can be translated when so mm-hmm. when you are insulted okay. uh, but I but I think your point still stands
0: Thank you so just real quick talking about being offended. Um, so this verse and the next verse, I think, uh, we can glean some things. Uh, this verse will talk about being offended by someone. and the next verse will talk about being offensive and offending someone. So when I am offended by someone, I was trying to ask the question, I don't always do this perfectly. When I was asked the question, "Do I deserve to be offended by this? Is it right? Uh, Or or do I need to be offended by this? And what I mean by that is, uh, is the Holy Spirit using this offense by this person to convict me of some sin, to sanctify me? So, for instance, I'll give you an example. I'm teaching this lesson, and if after this someone comes up and corrects me, you know, maybe I said something wrong, I, I made a mistake, and they say, hey, Connor, you said this wrong, you did this wrong, You were wrong. And certainly they could say it in a nice way, in a kind way, or they could say it in an offensive way. But my immediate reaction should not be, how could they say that? Uh, I'm obviously right. They're wrong. I'm offended. My initial response should be, is the Holy Spirit using this to convict me, for example, of pride? Maybe I am too proud of my ability to teach. Maybe I need to be humbled by that. There's sort of the opposite example. Same thing. I'm teaching, someone comes up to me and says, you were wrong about this. And I say, well, actually, no, I was not wrong, and here's why, and I show them why. Again, maybe I do it in in an offensive way, but maybe the Holy Spirit is using that situation in that person's life, if, if I offend them, to humble their pride. Maybe... They are proud or maybe um, they have some deficiency in their understanding of Scripture and the Holy Spirit is using that. So I would encourage you to to keep that in mind because we know we're all sinners. The church is a group of sinners. We're going to offend people. We're going to be offended by people. And so I think that's that's a helpful question to have in the back of your mind when something happens, if you're offended by somebody. Is this something that I need to be offended by? Does that make sense? No. All right. Um, How and why, so we're still in verse 14, how and why does Peter connect the idea of insult and the idea of blessing? He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. How are those two connected? Or why are those two connected?
3: obvious. If you're insulted standing up for Christian beliefs and Christian core, you're standing up for righteousness, you're standing up for godliness, and your response to the insult is appropriate and you should be blessed. You will be blessed, I guess, in another way, you're blessed in being able to know the truth and respond appropriately. Mm -hmm. Failure to do that, you would be just like the person that's insulted you Likely. And you would not do what you just said. You would not automatically go, is this something I need to learn from? Is this true or possible? You'd be immediately offended and respond inappropriately.
0: Mm-hmm. What does he say in in the second half of the verse? What? So we're blessed because what?
3: Because the Spirit of the Lord God rests upon us. Yeah. So we have the Holy Spirit working all of us, our attitudes and our thoughts and graciously we do and I'm certain that we don't respond perfectly and have to have the Holy Spirit work extra hard on occasion. I'm not reading the Holy Spirit very often.
0: Yeah. Right. It makes me think of uh, 1 Corinthians 1. Uh, Christ, the gospel, Christ crucified is A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So, if you are a Christian, uh, if you are proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the truth of scripture, it is going to appear as foolishness to the world or a stumbling block. Um, And so, the measure with which you are insulted or called a fool again, if you're, if you're saying the right thing, if you're um, proclaiming the truth, is a measure of, of how true you are being to the word of God. Because if you are saying things that the world agrees with, then are you proclaiming the truth? Because the Holy Spirit said through Paul that the cross is foolishness to Gentiles, to the world. And so, uh, because the Holy Spirit rests upon us, we are blessed when we are insulted for the truth. All right, verse 15. I'll read it and then I want you guys to explain why he puts this verse here. It says, but, so if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And I want to point out uh, the King James Version uh, translates "meddler" as "busybody," mm-hmm. so I'm going to say "busybody" because I think that's a better word, uh, maybe may a more understandable word um, for us. So, why does Peter put this verse in there after, right after verse 14? What is this verse saying? You may deserve to be himself. Yeah, you, and and why would you, why would you deserve that? in this case, in this verse. Yeah, yeah. So, sort of logically, verse 14 is saying, if you suffer for the name of Christ, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. But if you suffer or are insulted for these things, you're not blessed, right? This is something categorically different from what verse 14 is, is talking about. You're not sharing in Christ's suffering, going back to Verse 13. Okay, so the four cat. What what four categories does he give here in this verse? What, was the question again? what four categories does Peter give in verse fifteen?
1: Three specific categories in which he equates meddling or being a busybody with murder, with murder or thievery, which is, really tells you something about how appalling both of so that is as a sin, mm-hmm. and then a general category.
0: Right. Yeah. So. Let's talk about the first two, murderers and thieves. Um, I think those are fairly self-explanatory, right? If you murder someone and you suffer for it, you're not blessed in the same way as if you suffer for the name of Christ. I think we, we understand that. What about evildoers? Like like Joan said, that's a, that's a general category. What can we classify as evildoing?
2: All these things. violate the ten commandments we're going to be punished for that yeah uh, either in this life or the next if we die in our sins mm-hmm. so i think he's you know tying us back to the, the the basic requirements of what god has said that we have to live our lives according to his word mm-hmm. which are the ten commandments and then if we violate those and we suffer because of that because we deserve to have that suffering mm-hmm. as a punishment yeah for, for violating those commandments whatever they are i mean he puts down four things but he really
5: does cover, cover all. Yeah, yeah, so. He would
0: cover all. Yeah, and, and, and I think evildoer is that catch all category because what what's a synonym for evildoer? Sinner, right? So if you sin, if you do evil, if you break God's law, if you break the Ten Commandments, if you sin in any way, your suffering for that sin is not blessed. You're not blessed for that suffering. You are not sharing in Christ's suffering. That's a very wide net, right? That's a very general category. And then meddlers or busybodies. Why does he include that? Right? First of all, what is a... Does somebody give me a definition of a meddler or a busybody? I'd
3: say great gossip someone who runs around and strikes conversation up to get reaction out of people and has no really good intent and they never sell and speak. Good about others. they mm-hmm. just find fault in everything everybody else
0: does. Okay, good. So, gossip. Um, evil intent in, in conversation. Getting involved in people's lives to the to an extent where it's not warranted. Um, the word literally, I mean, and there's some
5: debate about what it, what it means, but the word literally means a bishop in the affairs of other people. The Episcopos is the one where we have for a bishop an overseer mm-hmm. so it's like a, a, a transcending into the affairs of people that you have no business interacting with or you know, investigating mm-hmm.
0: yeah. well, thank you that's very enlightening so yeah so, so the, the overseer the elder, the presbyter, the Episcopos has spiritual oversight over the members of the church But if you appoint yourself an episcopus, a bishop, over every aspect of people's lives, you are fulfilling this category here. So this is where I want to talk about being offensive or giving offense. So we talked about taking offense in verse 14, about giving offense. Um, And I want to set this up. So a lot of people, um, oftentimes you'll hear these days, people say, This generation, the younger generation, they're too easily offended. They're very easily offended. And that might be true in some cases, and in some sense. But I fear that, in some cases, when people say that, they are excusing themselves for being offensive. So, just because a group of people, or a certain person, takes offense too easily, doesn't give you license to be an offensive person. Doesn't give you license to be an unpleasant person, um, and it, it also makes me think of the you know, there's, there's the old saying, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up, but you know if if everyone around you has issues with you, maybe the problem isn't everyone else. Maybe the problem is you, and you need to take a second and or several seconds. And pray and ask God to reveal that to you. You know, if if everyone is offended by what I'm saying, what am I saying that is, or what am I doing that is being so offensive? What are some scriptures that speak to uh, our need to uh, be careful about giving offense to other people? Going backwards order because it's easier flipping pages. I think of Hebrews twelve, verse fourteen. We read earlier uh, seven through eleven. Uh, seven through eleven. Verse fourteen says, "Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord." So, part of our striving, part of our working out our faith, is to be at peace with everyone. That. To me, it ties directly into Romans chapter 12. Um,
1: Gentle answer turns away wrath.
0: Yes? Good? James 3 about the tongue. I'm sorry? James 3 about the tongue. Yes, James 3 about the tongue, certainly. Um, Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So... Paul Paul there, he he puts in this, so far as it depends on you, that's like a qualifier, right? Um, So you might be uh, striving for peace with everyone. You might be uh, trying to live peaceably with everyone. And people are still going to be offended by that. So that's not a knock on you. But as far as it depends on you, you are to live peaceably with all. And then Galatians 6.10 I violated my going backwards rule, so I have to put the other way. Galatians six ten says, um, "So then, as we have every as, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." So doing good to everyone, you know. Yes, sometimes people need to be offended. Um, sometimes people need to have their sin exposed, and they're going to be offended by that, or they might be offended by that, but. Um, We are to live peaceably with all. We are to do good, especially to those for the house of faith. All right, so verse 16 says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So I just want to talk very quickly, because we're running out of time. Um, This is why I brought up at the beginning those questions about Peter's life. Um, Peter denied Christ three times. He was reinstated. He was... um, restored by Christ, by the risen Christ. And then the rest of his life that we know about was marked by a willingness to suffer uh, for the sake of the name of Christ. He he was not ashamed. Earlier, he was ashamed. He was forgiven. That sin was forgiven. He was restored. And the rest of his life was a testimony, a testament to... Um, the fact that he was not ashamed of Christ anymore and i think so how can that comfort us
3: so first it tells us it's possible
0: what's so possible
3: that we can be forgiven and overcome mm-hmm. some major flaw or Not
0: lose our salvation. Yeah. Yeah, the the reality of progressive sanctification is shown very clearly in Peter's life. He sinned grievously, but he was forgiven, and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit led him to, um, like Mike said, the complete 180, right? He's now living for Christ and suffering for Christ and not ashamed of Christ. Um. And then, just remember the audience to whom Peter is writing here. So, this is sort of the, the general church history thing. So, a lot of people that he's, a lot of the people to whom this letter is addressed, uh, they, they may have known people who have died for their faith. Remember verse four or chapter 4, verse 6, the gospel is preached to those who are dead. That's people who have died for their faith. Um, many of these people would die for their faith. And then, certainly, um for you know, the next 300 years until Constantine, uh, being a Christian in the Roman Empire was uh, per- persecution was always a possibility. There were certain times where you know maybe a, a, a pagan emperor would outlaw you know persecution. Say, hey, you know, tell his his guys down at the the um, the lower level, don't don't persecute Christians. But it still happened. And it wasn't just Roman governors persecuting Christians; it was also just Roman citizens or Roman protectorates persecuting Christians because they thought that um, the Christians were, you know, sort of overthrowing the Roman Empire. So this is, I think that's that's an important thing to think about the the context of this letter. He's not writing to. 21st century American Christians. Yes, we do. We are insulted often for the name of Christ. Um, we might uh, have you know some social persecution, but the reality of physical persecution for us, in terms of losing jobs, losing property, uh, being tortured or killed, it's it's not as high, although it, it might be getting higher. But it's not a certainty like it is. In some other places in the world now, uh, and certainly, like it was for these people to whom he was writing. Um, so I, I think that gives it a sense of urgency, right? He's he's not just saying, you know, if this were to ever happen to you, then don't be ashamed. But he's saying it's very real. There's a very real possibility. There has been it has been a very real possibility for maybe the majority of the church throughout history that physical persecution would come upon them and so in spite of that he's saying don't be ashamed all right verse 17 uh for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of god and if it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of god so this is this is judgment he's going into judgment here so what is the outcome of judgment for the believer? Yeah, yeah, so we are judged not on our own sinful lives but on Christ's perfect life, uh, death and resurrection. What is the outcome of judgment for the unbeliever? Word. Yeah, yeah, eternal punishment, right? Um, that's not four letters. That is not, that's true. <laughs> that's, I'm not too good at math so I can't count off the top of my head. But um, yeah, so... How is that comforting uh, to the people to whom Peter is talking? He's, he's talking to maybe past, present, or future victims of persecution. How is the reality of judgment for the believer as opposed to for the unbeliever? How is that comforting for the people to whom he's writing? It's only humans who
1: are judging the Christians, but God is judging the unbelievers. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right, and that that goes back to to verse 6 although these people who died for the faith they were judged in the flesh the way people are now they live in the spirit the way God does so although this light and momentary affliction seems um, very heavy and even to the point of losing your life losing your family um, again it's kind of like I think Steve said the, the the part in chapter one that we read, it's it's setting our perspective on the eternal as opposed to on the earthly. Then verse 18, uh, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Um, Peter is per- perhaps here alluding to Proverbs 11, uh, 31. But I want... I want to point out, he says that the righteous is scarcely saved. Why does he say scarcely? Is he saying that uh, you know, the, the blood of Christ is just barely enough to cover our sins. Like, it's like you know just, just got over the mark. Is that what he's saying? No, of course not, right? So what is he saying? It's
3: fully covered. It's abundantly
0: covered. Yes, yes. But why does he use the word scarcely if that's not what he means? Because
1: there was nothing we could can... Do to save ourselves. If it hadn't
0: been for Christ, we would have all been, we would all have been lost. Yeah, yeah, and and look at what it cost to save the righteous. To, you know, he're, he's talking about believers. What did it cost for us to be saved? That's right. The Incarnous. incarnation, the humiliation, the death, the resurrection of Christ. That's a lot, right? So our sin is so great that. The father had to send the son. The son had to be willing to be sent, and to suffer all that he suffered, um, even to death, even to the wrath of God, um, for us to be saved. So, again, he's not saying that you know he just barely made it. You know, he's saying that um, the cost of our sin is so high; the cost of our redemption had to be high as well. <clears throat> and then, verse nineteen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So, how does trust ground the Christian's ability to endure under suffering, trials, insults, and judgment? So, in whom are we trusting? Through whom are we trusting? How does this idea of trust ground our ability to endure? The,
4: with the corollary word faithful uh, if, we, if we have if it's true that we have a faithful creator uh, then we are obligated to believe in said faithful creator and, yeah. and, uh, that's, and it's a choice uh, I, I choose to believe <coughs> in this even though I don't feel it mm-hmm. and that's part of the part. that's so much the problem that I feel this way and it's, it's hard to choose that mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so we're, not, we're not trusting in ourselves. Not, he's not saying, you know, trust your own ability to endure under persecution. All right. if, if you're like me, maybe you thought, man, if, if I was there and all I had to do was throw a pinch of incense as an offering to the emperor or be tortured and killed, what would I do? That's a tough question, right? And, um, if it were up to me to endure, I would probably throw the pinch of incense. But it's not. And it was not up to these believers either. The the, the martyrs who suffered and died for their faith, they didn't endure because of their own strength or their own ability to withstand uh, persecution. They endured because they had entrusted their souls to the faithful creator and yeah, he is faithful. And it's all according to God's will. Anything else from this section? Can I get someone to close us in prayer? Please? Thank you. Our Lord and our God, we come before you. I'm humbled by who you are. Our holy,
3: holy, holy God. I'm very thankful, Lord, for the fact that you chose anyone to be saved thankful for the heart transplants that give us a love for you, a love that uh, moves us to honor and glorify you. We pray your blessings on our lives and assistance in and, um, turn, turning from our sins, repenting, and
2: um, being holy because you are holy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.